And tonight we're looking at the book of Luke again. And we thank you for the unique features of the book of Luke, the things that he faithfully reserved for us under the, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So thank you, thankful for that, that you have given us the tools that we need to continue in this faith and to progress towards the full realization of your kingdom. We thank you for strengthening us. We thank you for helping us. We ask that you will guide us in our study this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at part two of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Now that we have two genealogies to look at, the one from the Gospel of Matthew and the one from the Gospel of Luke, we can compare and contrast these two genealogies, and they are different. So let's take a look at some of those differences and ponder the question how we, how we can reconcile these two genealogies. The first difference that we notice is that Matthew counts generations forward from Abraham. He starts with Abraham and counts forward to the generation of Jesus Christ. Luke counts generations backward to Adam. In other words, he starts with the generation of Jesus Christ and moves backwards uh, even further than Matthew does to to the time of Adam, the very first man. So that's the first difference that we notice. So if you want to compare these two genealogies, you have to take one of them and flip it over. You either have to flip Matthew over and go backwards to Abraham or flip Luke over and go forward from Adam to Christ. So you have to do, go through those gymnastics if you really want to compare the two side by side. Another distinction that we notice is that the two genealogies diverge after David. Matthew traces his genealogy through Solomon, and Luke traces his genealogy through Nathan, another son of David. So at, when, once we get past David, the two genealogies diverge. And a third difference that we notice is that Luke's genealogy is longer than Matthew's. So if we cover the same period of time that's common to both genealogies, the time from the generation of Abraham up through the generation of Jesus, Luke has 57 generations, but Matthew only has 41. So those are some differences that we want to look at, we want to consider. Why is that? Well, back when I talked about the book of Matthew, uh, I told you that there was this pattern in Matthew's genealogy of 14, 14, 14. 14 generations from Abraham to David, and 14 generations from David to the exile, and then 14 generations from the exile to Christ. So there's this pattern of 14, 14, and 14. And that's summar summarized nicely for us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, which says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, 
and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And I explained to you that part of the reason, one of the reasons for this pattern of 14, 14, 14, has to do with uh, the Hebrew alphabet. And I pointed out that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet have numerical significance. The first letter, Aleph, is one, Beth is two, Gimel is three, Dalit is four, and so on. So if we look at the letters which comprise the name David, or as we say in Hebrew, David, those three letters are Dalit, Vav, Dalit. And I showed you how those three letters, Dalit, Vav, Dalit, have a numerical significance. The dalit is four, the vav is six, the other dalit is four more. So that makes a total of 14. So that's part of the reason why Matthew saw it as so significant to divide the genealogy that he gives into 14, 14, 14. Uh, tonight, I wanna to show you another aspect of that 14, 14, 14 division. Uh, arrangement that you will find very interesting, I think. Uh, but another thing about the fact that Matthew arranged his genealogy as 14, 14, 14, that means that he had to skip some generations. He did not include every single generation. And we can see that when we compare his genealogy with the genealogy that's given in 1 Chronicles 3, verses 10 through 16. This is covering the period from Solomon to Jeconiah. And we see that after Joram, there was Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. And when we look at Matthew, he left all out all three of those generations. And then towards the end, you see uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, uh, Matthew left him out as well. He skipped over that generation. Why did Matthew do that? He didn't, he didn't count every single generation. Matthew did not intend to supply every name of every progenitor. Instead, Matthew wanted to convey a sense of the passage of a full generation. Ahaziah died shortly after taking the throne. Joash, who took the throne at the age of seven, actually filled out the generation of his grandfather, Joram. So Matthew was only counting full generations. He's not counting uh, short reign, short lifespans. Amaziah served only a short term before being assassinated. So his son, Isaiah, filled out his generation. So we see Matthew doing that. Matthew was not unaware of the missing kings. It wasn't that he was uninformed or that he was stupid. Matthew was not unaware of these missing kings. He's only interested in representing the passage of full generations and demonstrating that from Abraham to Messiah, three sets of 14 generations elapsed. But I also want to show you this other aspect of that arrangement, 14, 14. And that has to do with the lunar cycle, the phases of the moon. So if we look at the phases of the moon, 
it begins over on the right with a new moon where the moon is totally dark. And then once there's a new moon, then moving, moving in a counterclockwise direction here, uh, the moon begins to wax. More and more of the moon's surface becomes illuminated from, from our perspective here on Earth. And finally, when you get over to the left side there, the, we have a full moon. The surface of the moon is fully illuminated from our perspective here on Earth. So, and that happens around day 14 or 15. It takes about 29 and a half days for the moon to go through this monthly cycle. And then once you've passed the full moon, then the moon begins to wax. Less and less of the moon surface is illuminated. And it gets darker and darker, and finally it's totally dark again, and we have an old moon moving into a new moon. Well, what does that have to do with these generations? Uh, once again, th this diagram shows us the phases of the moon as we see them here on Earth. So we start out with, a, with the moon totally dark, then there's that first little sliver of light on the right side, and then it gradually increases until you get to day 14 or 15, right around in there, you get a full moon. And once you get past that point, then the moon begins to darken again. Gradually becomes darker and darker. You know, the, you have the last quarter and the crescent moon, and, and finally it's totally dark again. What does this have to do with the generations that, that Matthew presents? Well, if you think about it, the phases of the moon picture the history of Israel. If we start out with Abraham as the new moon, the moon gradually gets brighter and brighter until it achieves its ultimate climax, its full moon, on day 14 or 15. Well, when we get to generations 14 or 15, we're talking about David and Solomon. That's when Israel achieved its maximum brightness under David and Solomon. After David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel began to decline. There was a darkened kingdom. It was divided. The, the rulers, the kings became more corrupt, more and more corrupt, more and more wicked. And finally, the moon, if you will, disappeared completely in the exile. The kingdom of Israel was totally dark, was taken out in the exile. But after the exile, the moon entered into a new phase. It became brighter and brighter and brighter, and it received its full maximum illumination with the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that once again, you can see the, the picture of the 14, 14, 14. It took us 14 days or 14 generations to get to the full brightness under Solomon, and it went into decline another 14 to get us to that total darkening of the moon in the exile, and then another 14 generations 
to get us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that arrangement of 14, 14, 14 is really a beautiful picture of what God was doing in Israel with the coming of the Messiah. Now, there have been several different uh, explanations, and you will encounter several different explanations as to why these two genealogies differ. The first one is that Matthew's genealogy is that of Joseph, and Luke's genealogy is that of Mary. That is the, the most popular explanation in evangelical circles, that Matthew's genealogy is of, that of Joseph, Luke's is that of Mary. Uh, and, but some would say just the opposite. They would say that Matthew's genealogy is that of Mary and Luke's genealogy is that of Joseph, just, just the opposite, just the reverse. Another explanation that you'll see is that one genealogy is Joseph's paternal line, his father's line, and one is his maternal line, his mother's line, his mother's genealogy. That's another explanation. Uh, another explanation is that Matthew gives Joseph's line by birth, and Luke gives Joseph's line by adoption. So one is his biological line, the one of Matthew, and Luke is his adoptive line. And there's a couple of different reasons that are given for why this might have occurred, why he might have been adopted. One is that uh, Mary was an only child. She didn't have any brothers. So that the inheritance that would have gone to a son went to Joseph, her husband. That's one explanation. Uh, another explanation is that Joseph's father died when he was still a child and that this other man adopted him. So there's a couple of, of ways that that, uh, that that comes about. That one line, the line of Matthew is, is his biological line, his birth line, and the other his, his, his adoptive line. Now, when I talk about that first explanation, Matthew's genealogy being that of Joseph and Luke's genealogy, that of Mary, uh, an important component of that for a lot of people is the, the curse of Jeconiah. I don't know if you ever heard of the curse of Jeconiah, but the curse of Jeconiah is given as one reason why, why uh, Jesus had to be born of a virgin in order to avoid this curse of Jeconiah. Um, so with this, with this idea of the genealogies being that of, of, of Joseph and that of Mary, so Joseph would then be the legal father of Jesus, of course, not the actual biological father, but the the legal father. And in that way, the title to the throne of Israel could be passed on to Jesus, while at the same time avoiding this curse of Jeconiah that I will talk about in just a minute. And then the other genealogy that given in Luke through Nathan rather than Solomon is considered to be 
the genealogy of Mary. Um, the way that, that the, the verse in the, in the book of Luke describing this, it talks about how Joseph, uh, some, some uh, translations put it in parentheses, Joseph as was supposed the father of Jesus. Actually, the, the Greek reads Joseph, the man of Mary. So that, that expression, the man of Mary, is generally understood to be the husband of Mary. But some, some question that. They say, well, man of Mary could mean the father of Mary. And so some have speculated that, that Mary had a father named Joseph, and a husband named Joseph. Not the same Joseph, but a different Joseph. She had a father Joseph and a, a husband Joseph. Um, so that, that was another idea that has come about. But I want to get into this thing about the curse of Jeconiah. Uh, this is from the Old Testament. It's in the book of Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So you get the idea that, that God is not very happy with this Coniah. And he, he says, even if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would pluck you off. And I'm going to turn you over to the Babylonians. And then here's the, the significant part for those who take note of this curse of Jeconiah, as far as it relates to the genealogy of Christ. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So God seems to prohibit this Jeconiah from being king and all of his offspring as being king. So it was seen. Now, uh, one thing that might be confusing is that this Coniah is also referred to in Scripture as either Jeconiah and as Jehoiakim. So that's why we call it the curse of Jeconiah. So Coniah is the same as Je uh, Jeconiah and as Jehoiakim. So some people would say that, in fact, many evangelicals say this, that Jesus had to be born of a virgin because he was to inherit this throne of David, but he couldn't actually be a biological descendant of this line through Solomon and Jeconiah because of this curse on Jeconiah. So the virgin birth was a way for him to inherit the throne of Israel, but at the same time to not be a biological descendant of this line. Um, I, I realize that, th that those who say this are well-intentioned, but I don't think that's looking at the whole story. 
in the, the book of Haggai, we read about Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was descended from this Coniah or Jeconiah. In fact, he was the, a grandson of Jeconiah. And this is what, what God says to Zerubbabel. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So I would see this as undoing the curse. Jeconiah did repent, and God restored to him the promises of the coming Messiah. So notice especially that he uses the uh, exact same vocabulary, the, a signet ring. He said to Jeconiah, though you were a signet ring, I will pluck you off my hand. But he says to his grandson, Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring. So the curse was undone. And the signet ring, if you will, was restored. So I think that those who, who, who refer to this curse of Jeconiah as making the virgin birth necessary, um, they're well-intentioned, but I don't think that's correct. I think this curse was undone. So I don't think that that's a, a major factor in the virgin birth. I definitely do believe there was a virgin birth, but I don't think that the curse of Jeconiah plays at all into this virgin birth. Those who say that, that uh, Matthew's genealogy is that of Mary, uh, they re always refer to the fact that there are four women who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. And that was unusual in, in the ancient world to mention, mention women in a genealogy. Usually it only refers to the fathers. But there are four women. There's Tamar, and there's Rahab, and there's Ruth, and there's Bathsheba. And so people have looked at this and said, well, what, what did these four women have in common? Well, sometimes it's said that they were all Gentiles. Uh, Tamar was a Gentile, Rahab was a Gentile, Ruth was a Gentile. But uh, as far as we know, Bathsheba wasn't a Gentile. She, she was married to a Gentile, Uriah the Hittite. But uh, it's generally not thought that she was a Gentile. She could have been, but it's not thought that she was. But one thing that all of these four women had is that they were, they were all four associated with sexual scandal, or at least they could be accused of sexual scandal. Uh, Tamar had sexual relations with her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab was a former harlot. Uh, and we all know about Bathsheba and David. Bathsheba was an adulteress with David. Now, it's usually thought that Ruth was not involved in sexual scandal, but she could have been accused of that, right? I mean, can't you imagine her neighbors uh, saying, yeah, okay, you slept all night with Boaz, but there was no hanky-panky going on? Uh, that doesn't sound very believable, Ruth. So she could have been accused of sexual scandal. Um, and the same thing would have happened with Mary. You can imagine Mary's neighbors saying to her, oh, so you're with child, 
but there was no man involved. Yeah, right. We, we find that rather hard to believe, Mary. So those who would say that the line of genealogy that's given in Matthew was that of Mary, uh, look at some of these things. Although this is certainly a, a minority view that, that Matthew's genealogy is that of Mary. Now, as I was researching for this study, I came across another explanation of this that I was not familiar with before. And I think it's ra a rather interesting explanation of, the, of these two genealogies in, in Matthew and Luke. We know from scripture that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We can see that from scriptures like this one from Mark, Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this, referring to Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon. So we know that Jesus had four brothers and are not his sisters here with us. It doesn't tell us how many sisters there were, but it's sisters plural, so there were at least two of them. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. We don't read about this in scripture, but these brothers and sisters of Jesus had children. In other words, Jesus had nephews and nieces. These, this family that descended from the family of Jesus came to be known as the Despocini. That was just the name that they were given, the name that they were called. And there was a, uh, a Christian historian from the second century who went and talked to the Despocini to learn about these two genealogies. In the late second century, the Christian traveler and historian Julius Africanus of Jerusalem posed the question to the Dispocini, the relatives of Jesus who still lived at Nazareth and nearby Kokova. So this man, Julius Africanus, went to the Dispocini and asked them about these two genealogies. They gave him the story of how Herod the Great destroyed their family's genealogical records along with those of other Davidic descendants and how each family reconstructed their lineage as best they were able. See, uh, King Herod, Herod the Great, referred to himself, himself as King of the Jews. He was given that title by the Romans. But of course, he wasn't a legitimate king. He was not descended from David. So one of the things that he wanted to do was to destroy the genealogical records of those who were descended from David so that they couldn't uh, use that as a reason for why they needed to be king. And also, uh, he, by destroying the genealogical records, uh, if someone said to him, well, you're not descended from David, you're not a legitimate king, he would you know, respond with, well, how do you know? You can't prove that I'm not descended from David. So he wanted to destroy these genealogical records. They also explained, that's the Despocini, that both genealogies can be reconciled through leveret marriages. 
you, you probably, many of you probably know what a leveret marriage is. In biblical times, when a man died and left his widow with no son, his brother had the responsibility of marrying the widow to produce an heir for his dead brother's name. That's a leveret marriage. According to the explanation offered by the Despocene, the Solomonic line and the Nathanic line intermingled through leveret marriages and second marriages. Julius Africanus writes, those descending from Solomon and those descending from Nathan were so intermingled by the raising up of children for childless widows and by second marriages, second marriages between the two families, and by the raising of seed that the same persons are quite justly reckoned to belong at one time to the one family and at the same time to the other family. That is to their legal fathers and to their actual fathers. And thus it is that both genealogies are true and both come down to Joseph with considerable intricacy, yet quite accurately. In other words, Joseph was the son of Jacob and an heir to the Solomonic line, as Matthew reports, but through a leveret union, he was also regarded as the son of Eli. Here's how it happened. Matthew, from the line of Solomon, married a woman named Esther, or such is her name according to tradition, said Julius Africanus. Esther gave birth to Jacob, but shortly after the baby was born, Matthew died. Esther remarried. Her second husband was Mathet from the line of Nathan. With Mathet, she gave birth to Eli. The two brothers, Jacob from the Solomonic line and Eli from the Nathanic line, grew up in the house of Mathet, but Jacob was an heir of the Solomonic line. Eli died shortly after marrying, leaving his young widow childless. Jacob took Eli's widow as a leveret wife in order to provide an heir for his dead brother, and he sired Joseph. Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the stepfather, if you will, of, of Jesus. Therefore, Joseph is a natural descendant of the Solomonic line through his grandfather, Mathern, but he is also a legal descendant of the Nathanic line through his father's leveret marriage to his mother. And so here, here's a, a diagram of all that. Sometimes it's easier to understand what's going on if we look at a diagram. So Nathan from the Solomonic line was married to Esther. He died and then Esther married Mathet from the Nathanic line. But Esther had had a son with her first husband, Mathen, Jacob, from the Solomonic line, of course. And then when she remarried to Mathet, she had a son named Eli from the Nathanic line. But Eli died young and he left a young widow who did, had not had a child. So Jacob from the Solomonic line married Eli's widow. And they had the son, Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary. So Joseph was uh, of the Solomonic line and also of the Nathanic line through this deliberate marriage. So that's uh, 
an interesting explanation. I found that interesting because there's actually some historical basis for this. I mean, other explanations depend primarily upon speculation. So this is a, a explanation which I had not heard before and it's, it's interesting because it's, it does have some historical basis. So that's the information I have to give you about the, the genealogy of Matthew and Luke. Let's look now at some of the purposes of, of Luke in writing his gospel. The gospel of Luke aimed to confirm the Christian faith to a Greek convert, Theophilus. And last time in Luke part one, I explained to you all about the ideas about Theophilus, that it's thought that there was an actual person named Theophilus. Uh, he, of course, is representative of, of all of the new believers especially the, the Gentile believers. Uh, I also pointed out that Theophilus, God lover, lover of God, might have been a, an alias that, that Luke used to protect this man. Um, also, it's also thought that Theophilus might have been um, a, a government official, a Roman government official, because it refers to him as most noble Theophilus. And he also might have been the, the patron who, who funded Luke's research and writing. More broadly, it served as an apologetic for Christianity to the Greek world in general. So not only to Theophilus, but to all Gentile believers. It was written to set forth Christ as the ideal man to the Greeks. This concept of the ideal man was part of Greek thinking, philosophy. And of course, Luke pointed out to them that Jesus Christ was the epitome. He was the ultimate ideal man. Some even think that it was used as, as a part, along with the book of Acts, also written by Luke, of a legal defense of Paul to the Roman authorities. So there's, there's that idea too, that this, all of this um, was presented when Paul went before the authorities when he, as part of this trial. Luke writes so that Theophilus may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The word certainty, the Greek word is asphalia, as, as the notion of assurance. Luke wants Theophilus and other converts like him to be certain in their own minds and hearts about the ultimate significance of what God has done in Christ. By the time Luke wrote his gospel, the early church had separated from Judaism and was experiencing hostility from many Jews. At the same time, the new and tiny Christian movement was competing with a plethora of religious and philosophical alternatives in the Greco-Roman world. So Christianity in its early phases was caught in the middle, you might say, between uh, Judaism that had turned against Christianity and also it was lost in all of these uh, other competing religions and philosophies that were out in the Greco-Roman world. Why should Theophilus think that Christianity is the one right religion out of all these alternatives? Why should he think that Christians constitute a true people of God, those who are true heirs 
of God's Old Testament promises. Why, to put the matter at its most foundational level, should Theophilus continue to believe that God has revealed himself decisively in Jesus of Nazareth? Luke's Gospel, along with the Book of Acts, is intended to answer these questions and to give new converts to the faith a reason for the hope that is in them, as we read in 1 Peter 3.15. Last time I talked about several of the emphases of the Gospel of Luke. It's not uh, necessarily true that, that the other Gospel writers don't talk about these things, but, but Luke places a special emphasis on these things, upon certain things. And I, I listed those for you last time. But there's two of these emphases, special areas of emphasis in the book of Luke that I want, want to concentrate on tonight. One of these is that Luke presents Jesus as a man of prayer. He talks a lot more than the other gospel writers do about the fact that, that Jesus prayed throughout his ministry. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed after ministering to the crowds. He prayed uh, before choosing the 12 disciples. He prayed before Peter's confession. He prayed at the time of the transfiguration. He, he prayed at, on the return of the 72. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about the, the 72 later. Before teaching the disciples to pray, he prayed. The fact that he was praying is when the disciples came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. He prayed, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed twice on the cross. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. So it was part of the baptism of Jesus. But he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is before he chose the 12 disciples. He continued all night in prayer. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say I, that I am? So this is in the context of just before Peter's confession of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Before that happened, Jesus was praying. Now about eight days after these things, after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Many times uh, we have read this narrative about the, the transfiguration, but uh, it was only in this context that I noted that this whole thing took place within a context of prayer. He took these three disciples with him up on the mountain to pray.
In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This takes place within the context, as I mentioned earlier, of the return of the 72 from the mission that Jesus sent them on. But once again, we, we are told that Jesus prayed, and we are actually given some words that he prayed. This is just before the Lord's Prayer, as it is commonly called, the model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. This is in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he came, he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And continuing in that passage, and being in agony, prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So not only did Jesus pray, he encouraged others to pray. There are two instances that are recorded in the book of Luke about Jesus praying on the cross, praying while he was being crucified. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus was a man of prayer, right up until the end of his physical life. Luke is the only gospel writer who records two parables of Jesus about prayer. The prayer of the friend at midnight. Remember the story of the person who goes to his neighbor in the middle of the night and asks for bread? And also the parable of the persistent widow. Sometimes it's called the parable of the unjust judge, but I prefer the same better, the parable of the persistent widow, because she's really the, the person that it, that it points to as being an example of how we are to pray. Luke is the only gospel writer who informs us that Jesus prayed especially for Peter. You recall that, that Jesus said to Peter that Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but Jesus prayed for Peter. Another emphasis of the Gospel of Luke is the work of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are told that even told that even before he was born, he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. The Holy Spirit comes on Mary before she is, becomes pregnant with the Christ child. Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, is filled with the Holy Spirit when 
Mary comes to visit her. Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. Zacharias is the Greek form of the name Zechariah from the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit rests upon Simeon when Joseph and Mary brought Christ's child to the temple to, for his circumcision. He was, they were visited by this man named Simeon and the Holy Spirit was resting upon him. Jesus was full of the Spirit after his baptism when he went out into the wilderness to be tempted. And then after the temptation was completed, when he was returning to Galilee, it mentioned that he was filled with the Spirit. Uh, we are told that Jesus rejoices in the Spirit at the return of the, the 72. And at the ascension, as Christ uh, is about to ascend into heaven, he promises that the Holy Spirit will be given to his followers. For he will be great before the Lord. This is talking about John the Baptist. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And when the angel appeared to Mary, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So now, when uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist, Mary went to visit her. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And his, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, or Zacharias as we know him from the New Testament, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying, and that prophecy is, is quite lengthy, so I didn't uh, write the whole thing down here, but, but I just wanted to note that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah the father of John the Baptist. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, He's waiting for the Messiah to come, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is Simeon who was at the temple when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus there for circumcision. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought him, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is talking now about Jesus after his baptism, as he's ready to go out into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jor the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And after the temptation was over, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout through all the surrounding country. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And let me, this, as I mentioned before, it was when the 72 had come back from their mission. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is just prior to the ascension, when Jesus is promising that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon his disciples. So I wanted to, to bring out those two aspects of, of the Gospel of Luke. That it is, that Jesus was a man of prayer. And also, he emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. So those things, those two things should be <clears throat> very important in our lives as well. There are a couple of, uh, uh, more than a couple, a few issues that are brought up in the context of the book of Luke. And these deal with some challenges that critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible, raise and claim that, that Luke is not accurate. Uh, Luke states that the census decreed by Augustus, the, the Roman emperor, was the first one taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. However, Quirinius did not become governor of Syria until after the death of Herod, which occurred in about 4 BC, it is generally thought in around AD 6, that's when Quirinius became governor of Syria. So is this an error in Luke's historical record? Uh, Jesus was born, we, we believe, uh, before Christ, before BC. He was born in the BC era. But Luke, but uh, Quirinius didn't become governor until AD 6. So is this an error on Luke's part? It has been proposed that Quirinius was governor of Syria on two separate occasions. This is the answer. Once while prosecuting a military action in Asia Minor, he, he put down a revolt or an attack in, in Asia Minor, between, somewhere between 12 and 2 BC is when this occurred, and later beginning about AD 6. So it is thought that he was the governor of Syria at this time when he was putting down this uh, revolt. A Latin inscription discovered in 1764 has been interpreted to refer to Quirinius as having served as governor on, of Syria on two separate occasions. So it is true that he, he became governor of Syria around 86, but we have good reason to believe that he was governor before that as well, at the time that Christ was born. Was the Sermon on the Mount or was it the Sermon on the Plain? Uh, some would point out this distinction. We know from the book of Matthew where the sermon is most well known, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. But there are statements in the book of Luke and the Gospel of Luke that would seem to indicate that it wasn't on a mount, it was on a plain. Well, let's look at this more closely. Luke affirms that Jesus stood on a level place when he gave this famous sermon. But Matthew says he went up on a mountain to deliver it. How are we to reconcile this? 
Was it on a boat or was it on a plane? The discrepancy can be reconciled by noticing by noting that Matthew's reference to the mountain indicates only the general area where everyone was, while the level place denotes the particular spot from which Jesus spoke. Luke says he stood on a level place. It does not say that all the people were seated in a level place. A level place from which to preach to a multitude on a mountainside would make a natural amphitheater. So there's really no contradiction between these two ideas of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus standing on a level place to deliver his sermon. The next thing that I want to look at is some textual issues regarding the, the Gospel of Luke. In the King James Version of Luke 4, chapter 4, verse 4, this is during the, the temptation when, when Satan urges Jesus to take these stones and turn them into bread. And Jesus answered him, said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Notice the, the part in red there, but by every word of God. If we look at this verse in more modern translations, such as the ESV, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So notice that the portion in red in the previous slide is not in the ESV. And you will find that is also true with other modern translations. So why does the King James have it and other translations don't? So this, the, verse, the ones that include but by every word of God would be just the King James Version and the New King James Version. But the RSV, the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Net Bible all do not have that portion in red. They just say a person does not live by bread alone. So what is, what is going on here? Well, um, one of the things that you will find if you if you look into the the text of the various gospel writers you will find that as time went along copyists made efforts to harmonize the gospels in other words while a copyist was copying this book of luke this gospel of luke he remembered that over in the Gospel of Matthew, it does say a person does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So when he came to this verse in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, he thought, well, Matthew does include it, but this, uh, this uh, verse in Luke doesn't include it, so somebody must have left it out. So maybe I should add that back in there. So at some point, a copyist added back this part about by every word of God. Uh, Jesus is quoting from, from Deuteronomy 8.3, but Matthew does give us the entire passage, and Luke just gives us a portion of the passage. There's nothing wrong with that. 
the load just gives us a portion of it. But anyway, that's what probably happened is that originally the Gospel of Luke did not include that entire passage, but only the first part of it. The earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Luke do not include this part that you see in red here, but by every word of God. So Matthew does include it, Luke does not, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or in the ancient world, when uh, a person was referring to a passage in the Bible, he didn't necessarily have to give you the, the entire passage, just by, by giving you the first part of the passage, he would stimulate your memory and, and make you think of the rest of the passage. Of course, that is becoming more and more of a problem as our society becomes more and more biblically illiterate. <laughs> the other um, passage that I wanted to talk about, uh, I referred several times to the 72. Here's this, this verse, uh, verses, chapter 10 of Luke, verses 1 and 17. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And then it talks about the, the, what the 70 did. And, and when they returned, the 70 returned with joy, saying, the Lord, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So it notice that it talks about 70. If we look at these same verses in the ESV, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. The 72 returned with joy, saying, the Lord, even the demons, are subject to us in your name. So here it's not just a matter of the King James versus the modern translations, which take into account older manuscripts. But this is actually a division, if you will, between modern translations. So, which versions say, uh, which translations say 70? Well, the King James, the New King James, the Revised Standard, the NASB, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible all say 70. But the ESV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, and the Net Bible all say 72. So, which is correct, 70 or 72? Well, I, I gave a, um, a Bible study, a Bible study series uh, some time ago on textual criticism and textual variance. And if you're real interested in, in, these, in this subject, I would recommend that to you. It's on the, on the church website. But I'll, I'll need to talk a little bit about Textual criticism for those of you who didn't hear that. Textual variance. Uh, th this is a book that uh, talks about uh, the significant textual variance. It's put together by Bruce Metzger. It's called A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament. And this is sort of the standard reference that we will use seminary students use when they want to examine textual variants. 
in this book, it, it was put, the book itself was put together by Bruce Metzger, but it isn't just based on the work of Bruce, Bruce Metzger, it's based on a whole series, a whole group of, of uh, New Testament scholars. But as they go through the New Testament, and, and you look at the various textual variants, in each case, they give letters, they assign letters to the, to the textual variants, A, B, C, D. What do the letters mean? Well, if they give this a particular uh, set of textual variants, an A, this indicates that they are virtually certain which of the textual variants was the original, was in the original, the original reading, in the autograph, they are called. The autograph simply means the, the original, the first documents written by the New Testament writers. We don't have the original autographs. We have copies of copies of copies. But when an A is assigned in a particular case, that indicates that they're pretty sure which, which textual variant is the correct one that was in the original. B means that they they're pretty certain, but there's some degree of uncertainty. C means there's a considerable degree of doubt as to which textual variant is the original one, which one was in the original writing. And D means there's a very high degree of doubt as to what the original reading was. Well, the problem with 70 versus 72 is it is given a C reading. So there is a considerable degree of doubt as to which one is the original reading. We do know that it's one of those two. It's either 70 or 72. It's not some other number, but we, as to which, which of those two numbers, 70 or 72, is, is not real certain. So I, wa I want, did want to talk a little bit about textual criticism. You will hear from critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible, people who don't believe in the New Testament, believe in the validity of the New Testament. People like Bart Ehrman, for example, and they will say things like this, sensational claims like this. Why, did you know that there are 400,000 textual variants in the New Testament? And so that is designed to really freak you out and to make you think, well, boy, if there's that money, that virtually every verse in the New Testament must be totally up for grabs. We don't have any idea what they said. Well, that's not really giving you the whole story because most of the 400,000 textual variants stem from differences in spelling and word order or the relationships between nouns and definite articles. Variants that are easily recognizable and in most cases, they're unnoticeable in translations. When you, when you translate from the Greek into the English, you don't even notice these, these you know, for example, spelling differences. You don't know how the word was spelled in Greek, but you do know or certain what the, what the writer intended. So it's, it's really quite disingenuous to make this claim that there are 400,000 variants. They're not all significant variants. In the end, more than 99% of the 400,000 differences fall into this category of virtually insignificant variants. They're not significant at all as far as the translation as to what the, the writer meant. Of the remaining 
one percenters, so it's actually less than one percent. Only a few have any significance for interpreting the biblical text. This is the most important thing to remember about this. None of the differences affects any central element of the Christian faith. None. There isn't any major Christian doctrine that is dependent upon a particular textual variant. So when we're thinking, well, was it 70 or was it 72? Does anyone's salvation hinge on whether it was 70 or 72? Well, of course not. So as I said, there, no major Christian doctrine is dependent upon the textual variance in a particular verse. If that textual variant determines whether or not that verse supports one particular doctrine, well, there are plenty of other verses that support that doctrine, even if that one verse doesn't. So every major Christian doctrine is well established in the Bible. The contributions of Matthew. Matthew gives us the most complete comprehensive account of Christ's life. So he takes us all the way from before the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, all the way to the ascension. Other gospel writers don't mention the ascension, but Luke does. So he gives us the full comprehensive account of Christ's life, of his ministry. Luke emphasizes the central importance of God's plan. In his gospel, he emphasizes the plan of God. The fulfillment of God's plan is the structure for Luke's gospel. So he shows us how the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ carries out God's plan. Luke emphasizes the Gentiles as the ultimate recipients of salvation. He brings that out more than, than perhaps the other gospel writers do, and that may be due partially to the fact that Luke himself was a Gentile. Luke shows Jesus' concern for the outcasts of society, the, the women, the children, the, the tax collectors, the publican, and so on. So J Jesus wasn't just uh, concerned with the outwardly righteous. He was concerned with the outcasts of society. And that concludes our study of the book of Luke. So next time we will do part one of the Gospel of John. I'll close now with prayer and then we'll open it up for discussion. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for this book of Luke, this Gospel of Luke. We are especially thankful for the stress that he gives to prayer and to the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would help us now to take this to heart and to um, look upon the importance of prayer and of the Holy Spirit in our lives with renewed zeal. We thank you. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.